the joy of being a pastoral intern, I guess, right? No one dies in this. Well, actually, that's not true, but um, <laughs> we, we won't be looking at that this morning. Well, if you do have your Bibles open up to Zechariah, we're going to be looking at chapters 12, 13, and 14. Tab said we had about three hours this morning, so just get ready. We'll look at this word by word. No, just joking. Zechariah 14. This morning we're going to open up by reading the, the final verses of this just uh, really magnificent passage of Scripture this morning. If you guys have not spent much time in Zechariah, um, my love and appreciation for this book has just grown over the last few weeks as we've spent time working through it. And uh, really these chapters are um, just some faith-building, hope-giving chapters. So uh, if you're not sure where, where to start reading in the Bible, go to Zechariah and, and you will be encouraged. So if you would, let's listen to, uh, follow along as I read Zechariah 14. We're going to look at verses 16 through 21. The prophet Zechariah writes, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. And there shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feasts of booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them, and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Father, as we have, as we have gathered here this morning, Lord, we come from, from a number of different circumstances. Lord, for some, this is a time of, of great joy, rest, celebration in life. Father, for others, this is a time of, of suffering, a time of sickness, a time of sadness. Lord, wherever we've come from this morning, Lord, we all have the same need. Lord, we need to hear from you and your word. And Lord, we are thankful that by your spirit, Lord, you have promised to meet us in the proclamation of your word. So I ask, Lord, that you would just fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would grant us, Lord, just this gift of illumination, Lord, that, we would, that you would open our eyes to see, to see you in your, in your scripture this morning. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we might be built up and encouraged. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so imagine that you're walking on La Jolla Cliffs or, or, or any of your favorite beach location, and as you're, you're looking out at the ocean, not too far from, from shore, you notice a girl swimming. And to your horror, you notice this shark quickly approaching. You shout out for help, but no one listens. All of the other people around you see what's going on, and no one seems concerned. 
So you run around the corner trying to get some help. And there you see this big black chair with the word written in bold black or in bold white letters, director. A man sits in the chair shouting out instructions. You've walked into a, into a scene of a movie. Can you imagine the, the sigh of relief that you would have? I mean, what would have been going through your mind is you were frantically yelling out, trying to get this girl's attention. You're frantically yelling out to get anyone's attention. You want someone to do something. All of the the worst case scenarios are going through your mind about what is possibly going to happen. And then just imagine that huge feeling of relief you would have as you see the director's chair. Friends, as we approach our passage this morning... This is exactly what the prophet Zechariah wants to do for us in his word. The prophet Zechariah is getting out the director's chair and he's setting it front and center for all of us to see. So that all of us will know that everything is under control. Friends, this is what the Holy Spirit wants to do for you and me this morning as well. These closing chapters of Zechariah are here to remind us that there's someone sitting in the director's chair. There is someone who is in control of all of human history. And there's someone who's in complete control of our lives. Complete control of every circumstance that we go through. Every detail. Everything that will happen today. There is a God sitting in the director chair sitting in the director's chair, who is in complete control. So where do you need to be reminded of this truth this morning? Perhaps as you look at the world around you, as we look at at the world, 21st century America, as we just consider the political realities, the financial realities, the the social realities of, of life in a fallen world, I mean, does it just leave you questioning what in the world is going on? Perhaps maybe you think to yourself, if God was really in control, then things would look a lot different. Or maybe a little closer to home, as you examine your own life, as you consider your marriage, your children, your friendships, your finances, your career and your calling, are these areas of discouragement or or frustration to you? Do you ever just sit back and consider Man, what is going on here? And you find yourself just looking back over the the last number of years and just unable to understand how time has just flown by, but the circumstances of your life just haven't seemed to change. Certainly things haven't gotten better. You know, you're still in the same career and you just feel trapped. You look around and it seems like everyone else, all of their kids are doing much better in all areas of life than you are. You know, in short, you feel disappointed. Perhaps you feel like a disappointment. It's easy for us to forget that God's in control. Or perhaps you're here and you don't find yourself looking back, but you're looking forward to the future and you are just completely overwhelmed and discouraged. You have no idea what you're going to do with your life. You can sense all of these demands bearing in on you, and you have, you have no idea how to prioritize them. Maybe you're sitting here, and you're just questioning, who in the world am I going to walk through life with? 
You know, to pull from the story earlier, maybe does it, does it feel like you're not so much that person standing on the cliff looking out at the scene, but perhaps maybe you feel like the person in the water with this shark approaching you. You're screaming out for help and no one seems to listen. You have no clue that there's someone sitting in the director's chair. If you feel like you can relate with all of that, I just want you to know that you're not alone. You're not alone in this room, and you're certainly not alone in history. As we've seen over the past few weeks as we've walked through uh, the prophet Zechariah, uh, the Israelites found themselves in that exact same situation. Their expectations were unfulfilled. Their hopes had been dashed. Their dreams had been shattered. They finally found themselves back in the land. This was the place where everything was finally going to go well with them. And everywhere they looked around, there was only discouragement. There was no hope on the horizon for them. And we see that it's into this bleak situation that God, through Zechariah, speaks to his people. Specifically in our passages, as we look at chapters 12, 13, and 14, we see that God is seeking to give his people hope that in the midst of their discouragement, that he is in control and that he will establish his kingdom. God wants to give his people hope, and he wants to do so as he gives them a vision of the end of the end. As he pulls back the curtain on the end of history and reveals to them what he will bring about. And he wants to do the same thing for us this morning. Now before we jump into this passage, which is so rich, I just briefly want to explain this loaded phrase, kingdom of God. This is such a rich theme that just runs throughout the whole of Scripture. In fact, uh, for a number of people, they see this theme of the kingdom of God as, as the unifying theme running throughout the whole of Scripture. They say, if you want to understand the Bible, you need to understand the kingdom of God. And I don't think they're too far off. But unfortunately, when you start hearing about kingdom of God, it can just get a little cloudy, a little fuzzy. What, what, do, they, what do they mean when they say that? Well, I'm certainly not claiming to understand everything that the Bible has to say about the kingdom of God. I, I have found a definition to be, to be very helpful as you think about this concept. Uh, the definition um, is not unique to me here, uh, but it's from Graham Goldsworthy. And he's defined the kingdom of God as God's people in God's place under God's rule. When you see this theme of the kingdom of God, this is what, what you should envision here. You should envision God's people in God's place under God's rule. We see this in, in the beginning chapters of Scripture in Genesis 1 and 2 as God's people, Adam and Eve, are in God's place, the Garden of Eden, under God's rule, enjoying this blessing of the kingdom with the one rule to not eat the tree of the garden. I mean, this is a picture of the way things are meant to be, where God's people are in perfect relationship with him, living in a world unstained by the effects of sin, enjoying the blessings of God's care for them. Um, but as our experience testifies, we know that this perfect picture here in Genesis 1 and 2 doesn't last long. As we turn to Genesis chapter 3, we see that this, this kingdom is, is destroyed. Adam and Eve disobey God's one rule. But as we look at the rest of Scripture, from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22, we see that God in his love is out to fulfill his promise to once again to restore this kingdom to earth. 
And it's this vision that has captured Zechariah's imagination as he writes these final chapters. Chapters 12 through 14 display the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise as we see that God's people will be under God's rule in God's place. And this is meant to give them fresh hope that God will fulfill his promises. So let's first turn our attention to the first part of our definition, and let's see how God will restore his people. If God will restore his kingdom, then we see that he must first restore his people. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden when they were exiled from God's presence, the central question has always been, how can a holy God dwell among a sinful people? And the short answer is that he can't. A holy God cannot dwell in the midst of a sinful people. And this is exactly what Zechariah wants us to see in this picture. Um, a holy God can't, or can't dwell among a sinful people. God must deal with their sin. And that's what Zechariah, Zechariah wants us to see here. And to help us see this, he gives us two pictures. Look with me at the first picture. We see this in, in Zechariah 12.10 in verse 13.1. In 1210, Zechariah writes, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn." On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. In these, in, in these verses here, we see a vision of the Israelites suddenly plunged into grief by their realization that their king has been slain. But this wasn't a death experience at the hands of an enemy. The people themselves are responsible for this death. Did you catch that in verse 10? He says, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. In response to the realization that their king is dead and that they are responsible, we see that the people mourn. But this isn't some half-hearted mourning, perhaps the mourning that we might feel when a past president dies and we see it on TV. This is the, the mourning that the people have is a, a deep grief over the, the death of a, of a child. And it's important to notice that as we look at the mourning of the people, it's not just over the fact that this king has died, but over the fact that they're responsible for his death. They weren't just spectators, but they were active participants in this king's death. So their great sorrow is in response to their, to their sin against this God. In the remaining chapters of verse 12, it described the, the communal mourning of the people as they mourn over the one that they have pierced. But we're not left with the vision of the people mourning because as we turn to chapter 13, we see that from the flood of tears will come a fountain of cleansing for God's people. Did you see that in verse 13:1? It says, on that day, the same day that this king is pierced, the people are there, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanness. What better news could there be for a people weeping over their sin than for a fountain to cleanse them? 
And for Zechariah, this, this fountain represents the total and the complete cleansing from sin. This here is the fulfillment of what we saw earlier in Zechariah chapter 3, where God promised that in, in one day he would remove the iniquity from the land. Zechariah 3.9, God promised the people, he said, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. This is the fulfillment. This is the promise that from this pierced king will come a fountain of cleansing. The sin that had separated the people from God will be cleansed and they will be restored. They will be renewed to his presence. And we see this in the second picture in Zechariah 3 verses 7 through 9. Read these with me. This is God speaking. He says, Awake, O shepherd, against awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one third shall be left. I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. And I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Friends, in these rich verses of which much could be said, I just want to briefly point out to our attention that the striking of the shepherd in verse 7 will result in the ultimate restoration of God's people to their covenant relationship with him. When God says in verse 9 that I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God, he's using a familiar phrase that would have caught the ears of anyone listening. Their hearts would have leapt for joy at the sound of these words. You see, because they knew for the Israelites, this was what they longed for. The Israelites longed for God to once again dwell in their midst. They longed for God to once again say to them, You are my people, and I will be your God. And because of the death of the shepherd, everything that had previously separated them from God's presence will be removed and they will finally once again enjoy the blessing of his presence. So God had promised his people that he would bring his kingdom. And here we see that the first step toward making this reality is seen in Zechariah 12 and 13 as God restores his people. But we see that the kingdom of God isn't concerned just with God's people. Turning to chapter 14, we see the climax of this message in this grand vision of the end of history when God will simultaneously renew his creation and reestablish his rule to bring about the fulfillment of his promise to restore this kingdom. As Zechariah sets the stage for this final or this ultimate coming of the kingdom of God, we find ourselves standing on a mountaintop, looking down as a great battle is about to unfold. And friends, this will be the true war to end all wars. So the battle opens with a distressing scene for God's people. In verses 1 and 2, Zechariah writes, He says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. When the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile. 
This isn't an encouraging sign for the good guys. In fact, for the the Israelites reading this verse here, it would have brought back very bad memories because this exact exact thing happened to them in 586 when the Babylonians came in, ransacked the city of Jerusalem, and scattered the Jews everywhere, sending them into exile. They had lived this reality before. But as Zechariah continues... We see that the outcome of this prophecy is entirely different than what had happened before. Because as verse 3 tells, and verse 3 tells us why. Zechariah writes in verse 3, he says, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. Things will be difficult this time, things will be different this time, because rather than gather the nations to fight against the Israelites, God is going to come down and fight for his people. The following verses describe God descending from heaven to the Mount of Olives to stand on the earth as the rightful ruler and judge, and it's, to no, and it's no surprise that when God comes and fights for his people, that they're victorious. This is exactly what we see in verse 5. In verse 5 where we see that the triumphant procession of God and his people enter the city after having defeated the enemies. It says, then the Lord will come and all the holy ones with him. What follows from this victory is, is nothing short of amazing. On that day when God finally defeats his enemies, he will renew his creation. Let's see how Zechariah describes this grand event in verses 6 through 8. Verses 6 through 8, he says, On that day, this is the day that God comes and defeats the enemies, there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. And on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer, as in winter. Does any of that sound familiar to you? In these verses, Zechariah is pulling from the original creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 to describe what the renewed creation will be like. Just as the first day of creation when there was, when light and darkness hadn't been separated, in this new creation there will be no darkness. Just as the Garden of Eden had these rivers flowing out from it, um, this renewed a creation will have living waters flowing out from Jerusalem to the east and to the west. On that day, God will renew creation to its original intention, when the garden, just like it was in the Garden of Eden. But we see that God's not done. In verses 10 and 11, they describe the extraordinary lengths that God goes through to create a, to create a place where his people will dwell in safety. And he does this as he describes the the typology of the land changing, changing around Jerusalem. All of the the land around Jerusalem, all of the land that that represented threat to the nation of Israel is going to be flattened into a plain, leaving Jerusalem as this exalted city on this mountaintop where it will forever forever dwell in safety. As I considered this theme, I couldn't help but think about the, uh, that TV show, Fixer Upper. 
sure if you guys are familiar with that. Um, but the whole, the whole premise of this show, and there's a bazillion other ones just like it, is that Chip and Joe, Chip and Joanna, they go out and they find an old beat-up house, a fixer-upper, the name, clever there. And then over the course of this, of this show, they show how this old beat-up help this old beat-up house just slowly transforms into this amazing new house with the shiplap everywhere. <laughs> You've all seen the show. <laughs> but we see that the first step of this transformation is always destructive. If you've seen the show before, then you know that this is Chip's favorite part of the show. He loves Demo Day. That is the day where he gets to take a sledgehammer to the old cabinets, where they're ripping off all the old wallpaper, where they really are taking everything out. They're out with the old and in with the new. And that's what Zechariah is describing here for us. In Zechariah 14, he's giving us this vision of the new creation, where the old creation that's been marred from sin will be thrown out, and God will establish this new creation. And at the same time that we see that God is renewing creation, Zechariah shows us a vision of God reestablishing his reign as king. It's God's people and God's place under God's rule. We see this explicitly when we read in verse 9, Zechariah says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. God's rule over the earth will be seen most clearly when all of creation will worship him. See that emphasis on one, where the Lord will be one and his name will be one. To hear that phrase, any Israelite would have instantly thought back to the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4, what they would have said every day. They would have said, hear, O Israel, our Lord is one. And here we see this vision of the whole of creation saying, Hear, O Israel, our Lord is one. His name will be one. This is a vision of time where the whole earth will worship Christ as king. This is exactly what we see in verse 16. Verse 16, Zechariah says, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. Those who once fought against, against God, those who were once his enemies, have been converted and they have now been turned into worshipers who will come before God's presence worshiping him. And if this glorious vision isn't enough, it gets even better. Look at the final scene. This is the last thing that Zechariah wanted to be in the people's mind as they close this scroll. Read with me in Zechariah 20 and 21. He gives them this vision. It says, On that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord, and on the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take them, and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. It probably sounds strange to you. Who cares about bells of horses and what's going on with pots and pans? If that sounds strange, I completely understand. But when the Israelites heard this, their minds would have been blown. 
This would have blew the socks off of any Israelite hearing these words. Because in these verses, God is showing the people that when his kingdom finally comes to earth, there will no longer need to be any need for a temple because the entire city will be turned into God's temple. We see this first with the bells of the horses that have the words, holy to the Lord, inscribed on them. Now, this might seem like just a minor detail. Why in the world is he including it in here? Well, this small detail takes on significant importance for us as we realize that the only place that we have ever seen this phrase in Scripture before is when these words, holy to the Lord, were inscribed on a gold plate that was put on the turban of the high priest on the Day of Atonement. This was a huge deal. So while previously only the high priest entering the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement was separated, was set apart and considered holy, now even the bells of a horse, an unclean animal, will now be described as holy. This, everything will be holy. Do you see that vision here? In this holy temple city, we see that the normal pots and pans will be elevated to the status of the sacred bowls before the altar. These bowls that were made out of special material, that were washed in special water, that were never allowed to leave the, temple pre- the presence of the temple. Now the pots and pans that you have ho- at home are considered holy in the same way that these are. Friends, that's the vision here. The vision here is that when the kingdom comes, there will be no sacred or secular distinction. There will be no clean, unclean distinction. But everything and everyone will be holy because God's people will be in God's place under God's rule. Friends, this is the vision that God wants his people to see. In the midst of their disappointment with life, when things don't seem to be going their way, as they find themselves struggling financially, frustrated politically, and socially divided, God wants to give them a new perspective. A constant refrain throughout all of Zechariah is lift your eyes, lift your eyes, lift your eyes. Here, God wants the people to lift their eyes from their discouraging circumstances to see the bigger picture of God's coming kingdom. God is faithful and he will will keep his promises. Zechariah knows that if the people can grasp this truth, can grasp the truth that God is bringing his kingdom, then it will completely change the way that they look at their present circumstances. And that's true for us this morning as well. I find it so encouraging that in these verses, God isn't telling us to do anything. God is calling us to see, to know, to believe, and to trust what he himself is going to do. The takeaway here isn't do this or do that. The vision here is see what God will do. He wants to give us fresh hope as our eyes are diverted from our circumstances to the God who is bringing his kingdom. Because our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is not in our ability to change our circumstances. But our hope is in God and what he has promised to do for us. So just as we close here, I just want to draw our attention to just three ways that this vision of God promising to bring his, bring his kingdom can just sustain us in the present. 
I'm not sure what you're going through, but I would hope that whatever your present circumstances, as we look at these passages, that this vision of God bringing his kingdom will, will uh, sustain you in at least three ways. First, as we look at these verses, it reminds us that God keeps his promises. So this vision can sustain us as we remember that God keeps his promises. As we consider the promises that God has given in this passage, we don't have to question if this is ever going to come true. The Israelites found themselves discouraged, and they really had no clue, how can I believe this? Why should I believe this? But as we are here on this side of the cross, we have complete faith that these promises will come about because these promises have already begun fulfillment. God's promises to restore his people in Zechariah 12 and 13 have been fulfilled in the death of Christ. The New Testament writers don't want us to miss this point, which is why that they quote or allude to the book of Zechariah more than any other book in the Old Testament when looking at the last week of Christ's life. They want us to know that as we see what is happening with Christ, that we are connecting it to this vision here in Zechariah. So just take, for example, the prophecy in chapter 1210 of this, of this struck king, this king who is pierced and a fountain of cleansing that will be opened. As we read that, did you have, have any visions to, to the New Testament? I hope so. In John's gospel, he wants us to see that it's Jesus is the one who is pierced and the fountain of cleansing is seen in the water and the blood that flow from Jesus' side. With this in mind, look with me at what John says in chapter 19. Chapter 19, John says, But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with the spear, fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy. And at once there came out water and blood, this fountain of cleansing for God's people. He who saw it has borne witness. His, es- his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Where he quotes here that not one of his bones will be broken. It's a quote from the Psalms. And here, and again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And we see that this isn't the only fulfillment of this promise. Because Jesus isn't just the pierced king. But we see he's also the struck shepherd. In the Gospel of Matthew, immediately following the institution of the Lord's Supper, where Jesus tells his disciples once again about the death he's gonna, that he's going to die, Jesus identifies himself with this struck shepherd. He says in Matthew twenty six thirty one, he says, Jesus said to them, his disciples, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. In saying this, Jesus isn't just pointing out that all of his disciples will abandon him, which they do, but he's after something bigger. He's after the bigger picture here. He wants his disciples to connect the death that he's about to die with the death of this struck shepherd in Zechariah 13, where we hear those words that I will be their God and they will be my people. In his death on the cross, Jesus fulfills these promises here by cleansing the people from their sin and restoring them and restoring them to relationship with him. The death of Jesus shows, that God, shows us that God will keep his promises. He's already at work bringing his kingdom to earth as he restores his people to himself. And this is whatever you're walking through. What, what promises of God might be encouraging to you this morning? 
we know that God is a God who keeps his promises. So whatever you're going through, seek after God in his scripture and, and hold those promises knowing that God is faithful. He's begun fulfillment and he will continue to fulfill his promises. We see secondly that this vision of God bringing his kingdom can sustain us because it shows us that God is in control. This final vision of the end of history is meant to reassure us that God is in the director's chair. He's in control of all of human history and everything that happens in our life. When we feel like we can relate with the world around us, as we we see no or very little sign of God's kingdom here on earth or in our own lives, Zechariah 14 is here to remind us that there's a throne in heaven and it's not empty. Christ is in heaven, seated on his throne, and just like any director in a movie, scene, in a movie God is calling the shots. And, and I do, I just want to say, well, I know that I, not all of our circumstances are, are easily explainable. There is a tremendous amount of hurt and pain and suffering that will happen in this life. And, and I don't say just to know that God is in control as if to pepper over any difficult circumstances you're, you're currently experiencing or that you have experienced. But God wants us to see that in the midst of all of that, that he is in control. Just think about how that vision can transform the way that you are viewing life right now. How can that vision of God in control change your perspective? And circumstances might not change, but neither does God who is sitting on the throne, who is ruling. I found this to be true just in, in, uh, in my own life over these last few weeks as Donna and I have just had a, a number of larger decisions to make as we consider our futures, we consider what God has for us. And it's just been, so we have no answers. If you have answers, let us know. But, um, but just as we've considered what in the world life is going to look like in six months from now, in a year from now, we have no clue. But it has been so reassuring to know that God is in control. No matter what happens, no matter what life looks like, God is in control. He is bringing history to culmination, and he is in charge of everything that is happening in my life. I hope that that's encouraging to you. And just lastly, I hope that this vision of the kingdom, this vision of the kingdom can sustain us because it keeps us longing for Christ's return. I don't know about you, but as I've, as I've read through this passage, as I've gotten to meditate on it these last few weeks, as I considered this vision of the time when God's kingdom will fully come, I've just found my heart yearning for this to happen now. I feel like I can relate with the Apostle Paul at the end of, uh, I believe it's 1 Corinthians, where he just cries out, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. I just find myself just yearning for this time where these new heavens and the new earth will come, when God will dwell with his people, when all that is wrong will finally be made right. Friends, this vision, Zechariah 12 through 14, can sustain us in the present because these chapters remind us, they show us that things are not always going to be this way. Things will get better. God will come and will bring his kingdom. I want to close with reading a passage of scripture that might have, might have come to your mind already as we've read these verses here of this time in the future when God will bring his kingdom. 
And as I do, I just, just trust that the, this passage, this, this picture displayed here will just increase your hope, increase your longing for God to bring his kingdom. In Revelation 21, verses 3 through 5, God says this. God says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne where Christ is seated, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Friends, this is the vision of God's kingdom, when God's people will be in God's place under God's rule. I trust that whatever you're going through in life, that this grand vision here will increase your faith, increase and strengthen you to deal with the trials and the difficulties of life right now, knowing that God will come bringing his kingdom. Let's pray. Well, Father, we, Father, we thank you for this vision that you've given to us this morning, Father. This vision in your word of the time when you will bring your kingdom to earth. Father, we have no need to question whether this will come about because in Christ, Lord, these promises have been fulfilled and your kingdom has begun to come. So, Lord, we just pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Amen.